Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. I should begin by saying congratulations. This is a record. We've never had so many people for one of these pre-performance talks. Thank you very much indeed. I rather fondly hoped it might be my charisma, but I suspect <laughs> it's Philip Glass, and quite rightly too. Um, welcome to this pre-performance. I'm Christopher Cook, and I'll be guiding us and our guests through uh, this evening's event. Could I ask, firstly, to, if you would make sure that all phones uh, are turned off, not simply uh, on silent or uh, echo, but properly turned off. Can I remind you that you may not take photographs and there is no recording, though we shall be recording the event and it will be available on the website uh, pretty soon so you can catch up again if you would like to. Um, Philip Glass's Akhenaten is the third, of course, of his so-called portrait operas, works that explore aspects of three men who last believes changed forever the world in which they were born through the simple force of their ideas. So first there was Albert Einstein in Einstein on the Beach, created in 1975, and then Mahatma Gandhi in Satyagraha from 1979. The last in these trilogies of opera is the opera we're to see tonight, Akhenaten, which dates from 1983. In Akhenaten's case, the idea that changed the world was his imposition of a radical new state religion upon Egypt in the 15th century before the Christian era. This was the first monotheistic religion in recorded history and may well, people think, have influenced Judaism. The pharaoh Akhenaten lived in the 18th Egyptian dynasty. His dates are estimated as 1385 to 1357 before the Christian era and he reigned for, uh, for the last for 17 years of his life. His wife was Nefertiti, and it's reported that one of his six daughters eventually married the pharaoh Tutankhamun. As pharaoh, he declared this new religion based upon Aten, which he imposed on his people. His new god was universal, supreme and alone, and deeply associated with the sun. By terming himself son of Aten, Akhenaten associated himself with this all-powerful god and to honour him he built a new city. But he wasn't the sun itself, but an independent abstraction of the sun, so the first abstract godhead that we know of. When Akhenaten died, his city was razed to the ground and he himself was sort of airbrushed out of ancient Egyptian history. The work we're going to see is in three acts and it's presented in a series of tableaux. The acts show the rise and fall and reign of Akhenaten. Act one depicts the old world, the funeral procession of his father and the new pharaoh Akhenaten's coronation. Act two depicts the new world created by Akhenaten, sensuous and serene. Act three depicts the corruption and destruction of this new world ending in Akhenaten's death. And the opera ends with a kind of postlude in which a group of students from our own time are listening to a lecture about Akhenaten. Well, we have a splendid lineup of guests, a quartet of them, to explore Philip Glass's opera Akhenaten. Phelim McDermott, who's the director of his new production, will be joining us, together with the countertenor James Lang, who is covering the title role of Akhenaten, and Richard Pearson, a member of English National Opera's music staff, and they're going to perform music from the opera. But first, we're extraordinarily lucky to have the two co-librettists for this remarkable piece of music theatre. Shalom Goldman, who is Pardon Tillingas Professor of Religion at Middlebury College in Vermont, and Richard Riddle, now Vice President of Duke University in North Carolina, and who was the first designer 
advanced lighting designer for the original English National Opera production of Akhenaten in 1985. Will you please welcome our first two guests, Shalom Goldham and Richard Riddell. The obvious question for both of you, but let's start with you, Richard, is how did this all begin? Well, I was telling uh, Shalom before this that uh, I think it began in 1980, 81. And, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll say something, I'll be brief about this because Shalom's really going to have the story to tell about the libretto. But I worked on the, the uh, second opera, Satyagraha, with Phil. And when Satyagraha was coming to an end, Phil said, I want to write another opera. And, uh, and he was very interested in uh, uh, Velikovsky's book about Oedipus and Ignatin, so he was talking about this. Um, but um, uh, he wasn't sure what to do about a libretto. And uh, Shalom will tell his side of the story, but the libretto, it's important, but what's really important to Phil, I think, was the idea and the concept and the inspiration. So he got together a pe group of people he liked working with, and it was two designers, so myself and Robert Israel, who also worked on the, those two operas. Um, a director, Jerome Robbins, some of you may remember him, the West Side Story and things like that. Uh, and then he needed somebody who knew something about the language of the time, and that was this graduate student at Columbia University at the time, <laughs> Shalom Goldman. But the, the point I want to make about this is, it wasn't so much the story um, as uh, in my experience with Phil, when he started a project like this, it's the visuals. What did, what did it conjure up in Phil's mind visually? And uh, one of the things he said when we started to work together on this was, he said, I don't need a whole lot to work with. And he alluded to something in the first opera he wrote, Einstein on the Beach. And he said, you know, Robert Wilson, who was the director who wrote that, he says, Bob could just say a word like train and I could write for 15 minutes of music. You know, that's, that was what he wanted. So, so it was the challenge, I think, as, as librettists was to figure out what those visual images might be uh, that would propel the music forward. And then the real work, I think, Shalom did uh, on behalf of the rest of us. So, so Shalom, where did you get involved in, in, in the piece? Uh, I got involved perhaps a year into it. Uh, the first thing I want to say, because I know you're recording this, and I hope uh, Glass listens to it, is that I'm sorry he's not here, especially because I know this is a wonderful production, although I'm going to see it tonight, but especially um, because on Sunday at the British Museum, hundreds and hundreds of young people from different communities in London came to celebrate and enact parts of this opera. It was a an astoundingly wonderful event, and I so missed having Glass there, because he would have gotten such a thrill out of it. Um, so I came into it because, yes, as Richard said, <laughs> Philip, although he didn't need a lot, he also was hell-bent on authenticity, and he had done this for the previous op opera for Satyagraha, which he worked with someone who could give him a libretto in Sanskrit. Now, there aren't too many people who can do that. And I, once he found that, he figured, why can't I find someone who can do it in ancient Egyptian? He couldn't find the person who could do both. That might be J. Robert Oppenheimer or something. But those people are long gone. So he found me. And he said, um, I want this all in dead languages. I said, you, you mean that? Like who's, it's not you know, Russian if you 
write something in Russian, then people all over the world can transliterate it and understand it. But if you write something in hieroglyphs, no one is going to read it. He said, I want you to find pieces for me in these languages and to transcribe them, transliterate them, and turn them into something we can sing. Just, just, just what were the languages? Ah, so we started with ancient Egyptian, obviously. Then, as Richard said, <laughs> Philip has a weakness, as I do, for crazy theories about great things. So, uh, as you mentioned, he loved this book, Oedipus and Akhenaten by Velikovsky. Is that a name that says anything to anybody, Velikovsky? Ah, our age is showing. So he was a very eccentric American renegade psychoanalyst who thought he was an historian. And uh, he's, he, he started a field called catastrophism, <laughs> which I, as soon as I saw that, I said, I have to find out about And catastrophism means that great events of the past are all based on some catastrophe. Without a catastrophe, you don't have history. So Philip thought we could have the Oedipus cycle and the Akhenaten story on two stages. This was 1981 in downtown New York. Why not? If you don't have enough money for one stage, why not not have enough money for two stages, <laughs> right? That was the basic concept. So, um, and wasn't he also, I mean, he looked at the Freud book too, right? Moses oh, and of course, and that's a nice link to London. That's good for the ENO people. We should, we should do something with this. Of course, this is Freud's city. That is, Freud fled here from Vienna, from the Nazis in 1938. And Freud's last book, which his daughter published while he was here, was Moses and Monotheism, which is the, the, the text from which this whole idea sprang, the idea of this opera. So to answer your question, without going on for too long, ancient Egyptian, but then I said to Glass, well, the reason we know about Akhenaten is not about ancient Egyptian, because as you said, they wiped him out. The reason we know about Akhenaten is they wrote about him in other countries, and they wrote to him. They wrote to him from Babylonia. And that, so we have to have Akkadian, which is old Babylonian. And then I said, the reason you know about him is because of Freud and the idea that Moses got his ideas from Akhenaten, so we have to have something in Hebrew. So Biblical Hebrew, Akkadian, and ancient Egyptian, those are the languages. And, and where did you look for the texts for these three languages? There, there, the problem was there were too many texts. There were too many texts. And I remember Phil saying the same thing to me, he said to Richard, about visuals. Shalom, I do not need much. I gave him a lot, a lot. Then he said more, more. So his... No, I don't know how much we could take him at his word when he said he didn't need much. But he meant he wanted the perfect images and the perfect words. Uh, and he threw, like any writing and editing, he threw out a lot of material that I brought him. But then he said, that's a gem. And now I see, 32 years later, that about each thing, he was right. Richard, was it the sound of the words, or was it the meaning, or was it both that he was interested in? I think, uh, well, uh, if my take on it from the operas I worked, it was, it was the sound. Because if you think back to the first one of these, Einstein on the Beach, remember, remember the language in that one? Numbers. That's, that was the, what he was playing with. Then he played with Sanskrit, and then he played with these languages. I think it was the sound. The, the other thing I would just reiterate with this, yes, we know about the, the books you mentioned, Shalom, but we also know about Akhenaten because of the imagery that came down to us. 
And I, I think that was consequential for Phil, you know, that, the, that we had those images that were really made it uh, abundantly clear how revolutionary this man was. Once, once you've got text together, once you've uh, begun to establish visual images for, for Fred Lars, how did you two work together? What was the kind of process? Well, I, you know, I'm 65 years old, and when I did this, what, I was 34? So it's a long time ago. But I remember this group working together briefly, and then Shalom did all the work. He, he, really, <laughs> he really worked with Phil on sorting out the words and the language. So uh, I think we were consulted from time to time, maybe. Uh, but it was really a glass, a Goldman uh, uh, finish I'd, off. I'd like to remind the audience that this is before the internet age. So finding texts and finding visuals was not, here it is, you know. No, it was very arduous, and it meant going places. So when Glass asked me, Shalom, do you know about Akhenaten? I said, I met him two months ago, because I had just come back from Egypt. That was in 1980. And I said, if you're going to write this, you have to go. So five months later, he went, right? He went, and he, did you go? I, did, I went, but not on that not trip. Not on that trip. And uh, so you had to go see these things. Mm -hmm. And the texts, I found so many texts. Uh, that was part of my graduate training, was languages and texts. So uh, and I was so excited to work with him because I, I knew where on the shelf these texts were in, in the different languages, and many in great translation. Now, uh, Anthony and... Um, his uh, understudy, are, are gonna, we're going to hear tonight some of the opera. And the English part of the opera, the great hymn, is sung in English or in the language of the audience. I just heard it sung last year in German in Heidelberg. Um, one, one thing you could say about Akhenaten is that it has perhaps um, the clearest storyline through it um, of these three so-called portrait operas. Mm -hmm. Was that obvious from the beginning? I mean, did you know that this was going to be an opera that was going to tell a story? I mean, in the sense, uh, the reign of one man. No, I didn't know. You mentioned, uh, you know, if you've seen Einstein, you know it's numbers and images. Mm -hmm. And uh, Satyagraha evokes the life of Gandhi. It has a story, too. It's episodes in the life of Gandhi. Uh, this, too, it doesn't tell one straight story. You can't give an elevator pitch to a Hollywood producer about this. Like, okay, this, 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 and then they fall in love, and then they find God, and that's it. No. It doesn't work. It's a, a key word, which I, I must mention, is fragmentary. The pieces of this opera are fragments, and our, our inspiration was... And I like to think this was my contribution, which, as I said to our group, they hated this man. They destroyed everything he wrote, and he... The name of Akhenaten was forgotten for 1,800 years. No, 2,000 and something years. They destroyed everything he wrote, and then all we have are, are fragments. We have, like, half a head, you know, his toes. It's very rare to find a whole portrait of Akhenaten. Yeah. So it's fragments, but they did fit together in some way. Yeah, one thing i just add briefly, in the, and it brings back the memory that, uh, you know, the first one, Einstein, was two, if you will, Greenwich Village artists, Phil Glass and Robert Wilson, put that together. Then Satyagraha was still pretty much downtown people. But it, when Ignatin started, we had Jerome Robbins. Now, Jerome Robbins brought a very different aesthetic yeah. to this. Yeah. 
than we did. And so, uh, and Jerome Robbins dropped out eventually because he had to spend more time with the New York City Ballet than this allowed. But I think some of that structure, you could maybe remember this, was Jerome Robbins' influence. That Definitely. He wanted more of a linear structure. Definitely. He took us about 14th Street yeah. in yeah. Manhattan, physically. Right. He lived on, <laughs> on East 81st Street. And, uh, you know, and now when you, there's a great book, Wonder of Wonders, about the creation of Fiddler on the Roof. There, too, you see how uh, a Robbins insisted on a storyline as if it was a movie, right? It had to have a beginning, a middle, and an end in that order. He always said that. It's not Godard. Right, who said every movie has a beginning, a middle, and an end, but not in that order. Right? So, um, mm -hmm. yes, a storyline emerged, but that, I think that took three years. Because you began in 1980-81, and this got produced in Houston and Stuttgart in 1984, the end of 1984. The, the ravishing duet for Akhenaten and Nefertiti, was that there, Richard, from the very beginning, or is that something that emerged in the working of all of you? I don't know. I, mean, I can't wait to hear it tonight. Uh, and maybe it'll, it'll jog my memory. Um, one thing I'd just say to cap off your question about linear structure, that's all true what we said, but then when it got in the hands of other directors, like Ockham Fryer in Germany or David Freeman when he did the production here, they moved it away from that structure. So it was back to this more imagistic uh, collection that I think Phil was very comfortable with. So it felt much more fragmentary in these kind yes. of productions, as you intended. What about the, the final idea? I've called it the post-loop, which is perhaps a little unfair. The idea that suddenly there are this group of students listening to a lecture about, uh, that rescues this man for the contemporary moment from his long period of neglect. Was that there from the beginning? Is that a glass idea? Where did that come okay, from? Okay, so I can tell you about that idea. All of the pieces of this opera are from the ancient world except for the end, which is from Fromer's Guide to Egypt, 1982. <laughs> and that is my contribution, because Phil said, we have to have a way to end this. And I thought to myself, enough of high culture. We have to have some, like, something that, you know, you leave the opera kind of laughing, but kind of sad. Mm. And we leafed through this guidebook, and... Uh, the place where Agnaton City was is a ruin. There's nothing there. It takes hours to get to. It's not really worth going to unless you're obsessed with this person. And, um, and it's a kind of desultory description. Like you've got to catch the ferry and that they'll try to cheat you and watch your wallet. I mean, it's, it's kind of like tourism speak. And he said, that's it. That's it. So I could take credit for finding it. But again, his art is... Um, identifying what fragment will work. And as you said in the beginning, yeah. he knows who to work with. He, I remember he said in Time or Newsweek, my genius is finding the right people. People say I'm a genius, no. He said, my genius is I know who to work with. By the way, he doesn't always want to work with people again. <laughs> I, I think that's a moment when we might, might yeah. leave it as a hanging <laughs> thought. Shalom <laughs> Goldman, Richard Riddell, thank you both very thank much. And stay with us. Stay with us. Ladies and gentlemen, our next guests are the countertenor James Lang, who's covering the title role of Arkanaten, and Richard Pearson, who's a member of English National Opera's music staff. Will you please welcome them? <laughs> James, as you perhaps remember, you have to 
have your supper and before you get to sing for it. In, in this, this, in it's this event. true. Um, let's talk a bit about Arkanarton. Who for you is this man? Wow. Um, it's, it's funny that we can look back on history and sort of find um, characters and people who we think have really shaped our world. Um, and before I started Agnarton, it was a, a piece by Philip Glass and, and it was, seemed quite repetitive and, and I didn't know much about it and, and you know, hadn't looked into it. But the more I've um, researched and um, read about this man, you kind of wonder how we didn't know about him before, really. Um, you know, this pioneer, this maverick who created what we nowadays would, would call our, our sort of religion. Um, Judaism in its sort of um, present form, you could say, has come from this belief in monotheism. What an amazing um, belief. Um, he's, he's just, uh, yeah. Um, There's a very androgynous quality about him, I mean, um, which is both unsettling but sort of very contemporary, isn't there? And is that, is that something that, you, that helps you get into thinking about this character? Um, I think the androgyny aspect, um, there's sort of thoughts that, um, that he suffered from a, a syndrome called Froelich syndrome, which um, meant that as he grew older, he, uh, his... Um, had sort of hermaphroditic, uh, hermaphroditic qualities that um, fat deposits in the breasts and his hips swell, uh, swelled and um, that it gave him this sort of very um, feminine appearance and um, that, that sort of lends to the, to the androgynous thing. Obviously, Philip has cast the role as a countertenor, which is um, androgynous in itself, this, um, you know, quite um, feminine voice um, coming out of a, of a male body. Um, and... And it's all, at the time, um, Agnarton himself was, you can see in the art from the time, that one of his things was that he, um, he wanted the art of truth. And so he portrayed himself as, well, we believe that he portrayed himself as he actually looked. And if you look at the pictures that are surviving, you can see him with these sort of swollen um, parts of his body. Um, and I think, yeah, Philip has... In casting it as a countertenor has really added to that um, that quality, and obviously, in our production, you'll see as as time goes by, that sort of androgynous aspect becomes more apparent. Nathan, we're looking at images on the screen here from the production as as we talk. Um, how did you prepare yourself, James, for the role? <laughs> Um, that's a good question. As a cover, that's even harder um, because you you prepare as well as you can. I haven't got to work with Phelan, um, uh, so I'm trying to. Um, well, I watch what um, Anthony has been doing for the last uh, sort of three weeks. Um, try and put myself into his head, which is quite difficult to do um, because it's, as you will find out tonight, one of the most focused performances um, I've ever witnessed. Um, so it's a, it's a challenge, but that's the challenge that we enjoy as an artist. And, and um, big, big vocal challenges too. Uh, your, your art, yeah, it? it's it's funny as as an opera um, with with soloists. There isn't actually that much solo singing. Um, there's a lot of um, chorus and there's a lots of uh, ensemble stuff. There's this beautiful uh, duet between Nefertiti and um, Akhenaten. There's a lovely trio. Uh, in the window of appearances which finishes the first act. Um, but
but the the sort of um, the highlight, the sort of uh, in terms of religious aspect for Akhenaten is this, um, as Shalom mentioned earlier, the um, the hymn, which um, is it's almost going into his soul, um, and uh, you're getting a glimpse behind the mask of of his belief. Um, it is challenging because, uh, and I, I don't know whether this is Philip in general, but um, for a countertenor, it's not the easiest in terms of tessitura. Um, and there's certainly a particular scene in the temple when he's um, uh, pulling down the, the polytheist gods and uh, that um, the, the text is all in an R. Um, and it's very repetitive, and ah and you just find yourself sort of slowly starting to sort of close up and tighten up until you can't move anymore, and then then everything is just it's hell. So so it's it is tough. It has its challenges, but it's incredibly rewarding too. And and you get past the temple, and you're then into this beautiful duet between Nefertiti and Akhenaten. What what are you and Richard going to perform for us now? Uh, we will sing the hymn um, as it uh, it's the only kind of solo uh, solo movement in the opera, um, and uh, yeah. Just remind us for those who don't know the opera where it comes. So this is um, it comes at the end of Act Two. Um, this is an image from uh, from the um, the hymn as his journey up to to the sun there. Um, yeah, the end of Act Two, praising uh, praising the Aten and the sun. Thank you.
Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Richard, um, how would you describe Philip Glass's music for this opera? For someone who's perhaps unfamiliar with Glass's work, what makes it so remarkable? Um, well, I think it's worth pointing out that the aria that James has just sung so beautifully um, is perhaps the closest that Glass gets to, if you like, conventional music, and as such is not actually that characteristic of most of the music in the piece. Now, if you're new to Philip Glass, I think it's possibly important to say what not to expect from a Philip Glass opera. Now, it's an opera, we perform it in an opera house alongside works by Mozart, Handel, Puccini, and Wagner, and so on. Um, but the rise and fall in harmonic tension that characterizes all those composers, and indeed pretty well all of Western classical music, is not really something to expect from Philip Glass, or at any rate, not in quite the same way. I think that Glass would align himself not with that tradition, but more with that of the Indian classical music, in which typically two instrumentalists will extemporize over a, on a scale over a drone bass for anything up to a few hours. And as they and their audience become utterly engrossed in their musical world, time seems to slow down or become suspended altogether. And Glass's music can have that, that effect as well. Um, the music itself generally consists of repetition of short musical phrases often arpeggios, which he varies slightly over the course of a scene. And apart from the occasional sudden dramatic change in harmony or texture, that's about it. Um, but he controls these elements with such mastery that it's possible to be drawn in and totally engrossed um, in this apparently very simple musical world. Um, for example, 
The prelude opens with a simple A minor arpeggio, which is soon joined by the bass, which starts pulsating gently. And after four bars, there's a slight shift in rhythm. And after 12 bars of this, there's a slight shift in the harmony to F major. And then back to A minor. And a bit later, there's a slight shift in the arpeggio, the top note of it. And after about a minute of different permutations of these slight shifts, there's one big harmonic change from A minor to B flat major. Minor back to A minor. Now, I find that as a listener, if I approach this music in the right way, um, which for me is calmly embracing and accepting the musical world that I'm presented with, um, and simply noticing these slight shifts in patterns, I find myself inexorably drawn into this world, and, and I find it absolutely engrossing. Now, if you find yourself at any point thinking, Oh, if only for a great Puccinian melody or some amazingly Straussian scrunchy chords, you're asking the wrong thing of this music. It's like going to um, an exhibition of sculptures by Rodin and saying, well, they look wonderful, but I wish they moved a bit. You know, it, it's just <laughs> not that sort of animal. Um, having said that, Glass does give us some glorious vocal lines, particularly in the duet for Agnaton and Nefertiti that's been mentioned a few times now. And there are sudden huge changes in texture and harmony, but they're not sort of led up to or prepared in the same, same way that, say, Puccini does. You can tell when a big Puccini climax is about to come, and then it's there, and it's wonderful. With glass, they, they suddenly happen, sometimes when you're least expecting it, and so it's a, it's a different sort of thing. Um, I remember when we did Satyagraha, which we've done here three times now. Um, lots of people came, lots of people absolutely loved it, but there are a few people who came out saying... Um, well, I quite like it, but it's rather repetitive, isn't it? And for me, that's like saying, well, I quite like carrots, but they're a bit carroty, aren't they? <laughs> this, this music is made of repetition, and if you simply allow yourself to become immersed in these gradually shifting kaleidoscopic musical patterns, it can be an absolutely amazing musical experience. And um, speaking of harmonic tension, um, Glass does use this, but in a very different way to conventional composers, if you like. The entire prelude is basically an A minor chord with occasional forays into B, F and B flat, but basically it's A minor for about 15 minutes. Now, the first scene proper after that, which is the funeral of Akhenaten's father, is basically an A major throughout. So there's harmonic tension on a huge scale. Um, and this scene is, um, it's not a lament, um, it's not a funeral as a lament. It's not even, I be believe, correct me if I'm wrong, a celebration of his life on earth. It's more a celebration of his immortal life. And some of the texts, forgive me, am I right? Um, uh, Live life, thou shalt not die, thou shalt exist for millions and millions of years. And the ecstatic quality of the A major after 15 minutes of A minor with pulsating drums, this rhythm... <laughs> After we've been immersed in A minor for 15 minutes, it become, the, the funeral music becomes some of the most extraordinarily, ecstatically joyous music in the whole piece. So Glass does give us harmonic tension and variation and glorious melody, but he employs them in utterly different ways than most other 
opera composers. Richard, thank you very much indeed. Wonderful introduction to what we're going to hear tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, our final guest is Phelan McDermott, who's directed this new production of Arkenarton for English National Opera. Phelan is the founding artistic director of the Improbable Theatre Company, and Arkenarton is his third production of Glass's works here at Eno. Before this, he directed The Perfect American and Satyagraha for the company. Will you please welcome Phelan McDermott? Phelan, <laughs> when you... Uh, opened the score and began to think about this opera. Um, did you have a very clear idea of what you wanted to put on stage? Uh, well, I guess the first thing to say is, uh, uh, more correctly, when you first opened the CD and put the CD on, uh, the first time I opened the score, I kind of thought, oh, I wish I'd got beyond grade one of my <laughs> piano <laughs> lessons. Um, you, 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 the, the, uh, uh, Philip Glass's music has been a big part of my life. I found it really inspirational. Um, and um, I was talking earlier about how 31 years ago I saw the original um, production uh, that was done here at the ENO and found that very inspirational. Um, it was my first kind of adult live opera experience, which is kind of interesting. So it's very touching for me to be able to be working on this piece again after all this time for me. Um, it's really exciting hearing Philip's music for me. So my first response uh, was I'd done two Philip Glass operas uh, before. Uh, and the first production, we'd done Satyagraha. And we'd had kind of design solutions. So the first one was like newspaper and sellotape, actually, some of the images. Uh, with The Perfect American, it was animation and uh, the kind of flickering break-up uh, break of movement choreographically with animation. And I was like, what are we going to do with this production? Is there a thing? Uh, and I was lying in the bath. Uh, it's kind of corny, but I was actually... I had an idea in the bath. <laughs> uh, and uh, I thought, oh, maybe it's juggling. <laughs> Uh, which was this guy, what, that's a really stupid idea. So I think that maybe because it's a really stupid idea, it's probably a really good one. I should dare myself to see that. The reason I thought of juggling was, having worked on two operas uh, before of Phillips, when you work with the performers, what you discover is, first of all, it's impossible to not find a performance style which doesn't involve slowing time and movement down. You can't perform the whole piece of three hours uh, if you don't find a solution to how to find a way to perform it differently. So the challenge of how you get faster rhythms in that piece is an interesting one. You can. Making people move fast doesn't always work. However, um, and people who know the films that involves Philip's music, like Cronin Scatsi, fast movement from nature fast, um, kind of authentic, natural movement, waterfalls, a speeded up movement of, of humanity going through tube stations, works incredibly well with Philip's music. And I thought, oh, juggling, seeing juggling patterns whilst the music is happening, maybe that's an interesting thing. And uh, as people will see tonight, we've kind of pushed that. 
um, as a kind of solution. So that was my kind of first thoughts: was what we're going to do, and, uh, and there was my first solution. But the balls of the jugglers, of course, feed into a dominant visual idea that runs through the whole production, which is of circles, and above all, that greatest of circles, the sun, which stands mm. for what Akhenaten believed. You know, it's interesting when you do show, when you create shows, it's very easy to look back and go, oh, yes, of course, I thought, blah, blah, blah. And I'm sure your own discussions about how you put the show together in the first place, it's very easy to look back and pretend you thought, ah, yes, I know, juggling balls, they'll be able to symbolise circles and whatever, and the sun and so on. Didn't actually think about that. But, of course, very often those ideas reveal themselves and maybe there was an intuitive part of uh, m my brain thinking on that level but of course there are lots of circles and in working with Tom you start looking about the story it's about the sun you're you're, you're going to be a bit stupid if you avoid it I think um, it's in the imagery of the, the beautiful Egyptian hieroglyphics this different aesthetic that happened during Akhenaten's period which is extraordinarily beautiful so we're trying to capture that and of course the sun is a big part of that the three figures who seem to represent the old traditional world of Egypt mm -hmm. in this production are dressed in a kind of banker's morning suit um, in a kind of costume that makes one think of perhaps the archbishop of somewhere or other mm -hmm. uh, and someone who although he's wearing shorts um, appears to be wearing a military uniform are, are you saying that the 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 the, the, the tension between Akhenaten uh, and, and them is, in fact, an age-old tension between an establishment that doesn't want change and someone who does want change. I mean, I think you, you can definitely see that. You can definitely see that story there. The sort of origins of those design decisions are less about wanting to say that necessarily and more about, you know, this production was kind of you know, a really signature production that happened 30 years ago. Amazing, beautiful design decision to just use sand. Loads and loads of sand, which apparently it took a couple of years to get out of the building. Um, and it was very clear that if you approach a piece that you have a strong kind of beautiful echo in your past about, you go, well, something different. And I got very excited by the idea of how haunting this um, rediscovery of this world must have been for 20th century people. Um, I remember as a child reading about the opening of Tutankhamun's tomb. And I, I don't know if this is true, but I remember reading that the tomb was opened and there were these beautiful feathers, fans with feathers on, that were there for a few seconds and then went woof and then were gone. So this... Um, atmospheric world that was um, dis rediscovered by 20th century Western world and then appropriated by them into their architecture, into their, you know, design and clothing, interested me. So maybe the whole piece was seen a little bit through that lens. So those costumes, a wonderful costume designer, Kevin Pollard, we talked about maybe it's a kind of strange mashup between the... Egyptian world as was, which we don't really know what it was like. We have these hieroglyphics, but what did it really look like? Very often recreations of it tend to be bright and tend to be um, sort of kind of a bit clean and crisp. And I wanted something much more dreamlike, more atmospheric, more haunting. 
and that said, you, your, your idea of what that world is, is of course seen through these rediscovered fragments, but it's also seen through the eyes of the people who rediscovered it. Um, there was a, a wonderful moment in the staging of it when we, Aknaton's being crowned, and uh, Colin standing behind Aknaton with the crown, and we crowned him from behind, because we thought, well, make sure you can see it. And it became very clear that that image was not right. And I said, I think probably you have to stand in front of him and block him and crown him. And of course, mm. that's when it looked like perhaps one of our coronation mm. rituals, which uh, you go, oh, they're as crazy as these Egyptian rituals we're recreating. So of all those parallel worlds, I would say, are existing in our production and to be interpreted drawn upon it. If you see those things, of course, that's what I, as the director, intended you to see. <laughs> <laughs> what did you ask for from Tom Pye, your designer? Did you describe what you wanted, or did he come back with his extraordinary set as a solution to, some, to what you talked about? Uh, uh, um, as uh, we were talking about earlier, it's much easier to trawl the internet for uh, images and for... Um, uh, uh, inspirations and t we we drew inspirations from lots of different directions of course the the literature about um, Armana and the city and um, we also wanted it to have this disturbing quality so there's a, an extraordinary sculptor called Malcolm Pointer who's kind of uh, a kind of pr for me a precursor to um, Gormley very extraordinary, disturbing sculptures, uh, human bodies with the heads of animals. And I thought, that's almost more like the Egyptian sort of haunting world I want than sort of trying to recreate those images. Uh, so Tom got very inspired by those. Kevin got very inspired by some of those pictures. We wanted it to look ritualistic. And, uh, you know, you look at those... Um, images of the Egyptian Book of the Dead and there are these strange rituals which is part of the whole the whole uh, funeral draws upon the Egyptian Book of the Dead there's this ritual where um, the heart of the pharaoh is weighed against a feather so as part of this ritual the heart has to weigh the same as a feather and if it weighs more than a feather the transformation, the process to the next world doesn't happen. So of course we thought we've got to create our version of that. So Tom drew on the hieroglyphics. Of course the set looks like some of the Egyptian hieroglyphic kind of structures there. Tom drew upon that. And Tom's amazing, you know. There was a day when I went to the, we were talking about Act Two and the Sun. We went round to his uh, studio. And of course in his studio he had this large, polystyrene ball and uh, I was like well let's stick that in the middle of the stage and see what it looks like and I said could we really make something he said yeah I think so we could I said maybe that's can you do that I said he said yeah yeah we'll do that and I was like I hope he's right <laughs> uh, and uh, he has managed to create some extraordinary images in this piece you know and I think Tom's a bit like me follows his nose and he's very good at going that's a big, crazy decision, and we should probably go for it. There's an extraordinary ever-presence, as you imply, of death in this piece. Mm -hmm. you, you notice that the coronation robes, both for Akhenaten and for his young son, uh, Tutankhamun, have these skulls all the way around. Mm -hmm. 
the edge. I mean, were you constantly aware that somehow death had to have this presence, even as one might say, in the midst of life? You know, sometimes I look at these ancient uh, theologies, uh, the Egyptian world of these multi-gods, and personally, for me, they make a lot more sense than some, some other religions. These multi-gods, this multi-kind of god worlds in which all these different aspects of energies, uh, aspects of ourselves seem to be represented, I, I find very interesting. And I find the relationship to death very interesting. You know, uh, this event that happened on Sunday at the British Museum was walking around those Egyptian exhibits. And there's this enormous statue of half of Amenhotep's face. And uh, very, the, the Egyptian idea of death was not that you died and you went off somewhere else. It was that you died and then you became part of a parallel universe that is still present here. So according to them, um, Akhenaten's still present amongst our world. And of course, if you end up doing an opera about him and this, this extraordinary thing that happens with Philip's music, you hear it, you go, well, Philip has the ability in his music to do these transcendent things, to talk about these deeper states, deeper things. So, of course, death is present throughout the whole thing, but also the eternal life that he had is really present because we're, we've created an opera about him and he's still being sung about. And I find that incredibly sort of strange and haunting and moving. If it's about death, it's also perhaps about desire. We keep returning to the Nefertiti Akhenaten duet. I mean, this seems to me to be the other, the, the, the kind of uh, classic Freudian opposition of mm. Eros and Thanatos, death and desire in the opera. Is that how you felt about it, that desire constantly runs together with death through this story? I mean, it, I would say Act Two is this incredible love story. It's a love story that Akhenaten has for the sun. There's a, a love duet between him and Nefertiti around that religion that he's brought into being. So, of course, um, desire is very present in that. There's something interesting about the fact that he has, as we were talking earlier, such a strange, these strange... Uh, story about what was his body really like? Was he, was he kind of tra a trans kind of character? So the, the idea of his body is very present. So it's very um, potent mixture, I think, of um, this incredibly beautiful music whilst being very aware of his body shape, his presence corporeally. You know, this sensuous duet I find incredibly sort of... Uh, exciting. So there's the story of desire and then this third act where you see the fact that it doesn't work out as a, a religion that he tried to create and then it's destroyed and then the coda that says well actually maybe it wasn't totally destroyed, maybe cyclically it comes back in later um, religions. So they get a chance to walk amongst their own ruins and again, we have our own little version of what their ruins are in our sort of juggling story, which we, people will see. 
is, you know, it's, it's very, very potent, I think. Fairly McDermott, thank you very much indeed. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you to all of you for being with us tonight. But above all, thank you to all our guests who've been here too. Thank you all.